BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Elisa Pressman, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Jason Bronstein, who's an assistant professor of sleep medicine and pediatric pulmonology in the Department of Pediatrics at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and Mount Sinai Kravis Children's Hospital. I'm also on faculty there, and this is the person that I enlisted to have the difficult conversation about how to teach your baby, toddler, or young child to sleep through the night to have consolidated sleep and the different ways to go about doing it. So we are going to go over all those ways. Some of those ways are controversial because they involve what's known as cry it out. It is absolutely possible to do it without that, but it's also okay to do it with that. And the reason why I wanted Dr. Bronstein is because he is a specialist who treats sleep disorders across the ages. And I thought we should make sure that we had his take on prevention of many of the things that come up in his practice because we can start kids off with healthy sleep habits out of the gate. So in talking about healthy sleep habits, we're going to talk about what's in our control. You can't actually force a child to sleep, but you can set up an environment and parenting behaviors that can help your children and infants get the best sleep possible. We're also talking about the science behind sleep and the science behind methods of teaching your children how to sleep so that you can feel safe with all of the recommendations. And then, of course, the practical soup to nuts experience of different kinds of sleep learning or sleep training, which is not as great of a phrase, but it's one that people recognize and it's really important Remember, ultimately, what's important is that your baby, your toddler, your children get consolidated night's sleep. How you get to that point can be varied, and we're going to hopefully get you a little closer to it today. Where do you land on getting consolidated sleep for infants? What are some of the strategies that parents can use that don't worry you? Because a lot of parents are worried about crying, age that they can cry if they do do cry it out or they have really religious ideas about where their child should sleep or shouldn't sleep and rituals. And what I'm hearing you saying is for part of this, if it helps your connection with your child to have certain ideas about sleep, go for it as long as it's not harmful. But there's not a lot of evidence for for some of the things that parents get really fanatical about. And that sounded negative. I don't mean fanatical. I actually think the social media world makes it seem fanatical. People get really strong. 
So I want to dispel some of those myths. And that's not to say like, you can't do that thing. It's more to say, do your thing, but maybe don't look at other people and think they're screwing up because they're not. (laughs) Absolutely. I I would say, first off, that no, no matter what you do, most people who who come to raising a a child and uh, and having their, their infant sleep through the night Children in many ways are very forgiving at this age. Uh, you, you have to do a lot to really screw up. So even if your child is not sleeping well, as long as they're getting some good sleep, they're probably going to be fine. If they're progressing well developmentally, if they're gaining weight, those are all good signs. And you don't have to do it any particular way really to, to get a good outcome with your child. There are some basic things that uh, will, will help you and, uh, and it's not fancy and it's not buying a product or subscribing to uh, you know, a particular Instagram account. But in general, depending on the age, there, there's different things you're going to want to do for newborns and younger infants. That's going to be giving them the opportunity to, to sleep every one and a half to two hours. They're mm-hmm. probably going to seem tired and if you're watching your baby's cues that they're starting to look tired um, or maybe even a little bit overtired, if you've waited a little bit too long, you're going to want to try and, and allow them that opportunity. They probably will fall asleep no matter what you do, but you, you don't want to be trying to keep them stimulated and, and awake. And as long as you're watching your baby's cues and allowing them to have that opportunity, they will nap and as long as you're not making way too much noise, they'll probably sleep for a full sleep cycle or two before waking up. And, uh, and that's, that's pretty good. Uh, the, the trouble uh-huh. is during those first few months, infants don't really have a circadian rhythm. They don't really have the ability to, to regulate their sleep according to the day and night um, or according to a lot of other cues. But after the first few months, they do start to develop a rhythm and they can be trainable. So having them exposed to light, having the lights on or bringing them outside during the day, trying to schedule their feeding times and your activity with them can start to push them more towards a, a nighttime schedule of sleep. They may not be sleeping throughout the whole night, but they may be sleeping more at night and awake more during the day. And that will probably be advantageous to any parent to help you start to regain some of your life. I was going to ask you if you could tell us how much time needs to go by on average for a sleep cycle. So sleep cycles vary from child to child, but the average in the newborn and infant period is around 40 to 50 minutes. Great. So after several months, can you speak to, for those parents who are comfortable with the crying it out, I guess crying it out is an easier thing to say than sleep training, but there's also sleep training that doesn't necessarily entail crying. So the different ways that parents might help support consolidated sleep and um, dispel some of the very extreme feelings around how you get your child to sleep. Yes. Not dispel the feelings, dispel the myths around those those yes. passionate feelings. I think it would be really wonderful to hear. Absolutely. So there are changes that occur after a few months of life where children 
start to develop a circadian rhythm, their sleep stages uh, grow a little bit longer. And then as they get older, they actually start to require more time to transition into sleep. The, the first thing that you want to do uh, as your child gets into a few months of age is you'll want to try and give them a little bit more independence and time to fall asleep. So the things that you might be doing in the newborn period uh, where you're rocking the child, maybe even feeding the child asleep, really being fully engaged and involved uh, where, where you feel like you're almost causing them to fall asleep even though they, they don't necessarily need that, but, but you may be doing that because, because <laughs> you're, you're, you're very worried as, as all of us really are. Um, you want to try and, and, and wean away from some of those things because your child will fall asleep on their own if it's timed relatively well, if you're picking up on those cues that they are tired, if it's been probably more, you know, an hour and a half or two hours since they've last napped. And obviously as they get older, that may go a little bit longer you're you're going to want to watch those cues and then kind of leave them to their own make sure of course that they're changed and that they're fed and that you hopefully have a reasonable environment not too much exposure to sunlight not too much sound if you can avoid it and then let them be and they might take some time and they might call out to you depending on where they are and how accustomed they've become to having you rock them to sleep or things. And you may be able to avoid the need for sleep training or other methods of what we call it extinguishing uh, associations or, or sleep conditioning. So you may not even need a whole process of sleep training if you're able to get away from those things that you've done earlier in infancy. But let's say that you've clung pretty tightly towards rocking them or feeding them to fall asleep. At this point, after a few months, they've probably unconsciously become conditioned to those cues. This is, this is something that, that's a, a very natural uh, human learning skill. Uh, probably all animals have it as well. Uh, it's called classical conditioning. It's the idea that the, uh, the mind becomes accommodated and conditioned to certain cues in the environment and associates that with different physiologic states. So uh, in very early research, um, there were experiments with this researcher named Pavlov, and he had uh, dogs who he, uh, he he was feeding his dogs who he, he would experiment on, unfortunately. But uh, <laughs> he noticed <laughs> he noticed that right he, he noticed that um, for whatever reason he he was ringing a bell before bringing the food out to the dogs, and realized that the dogs would start salivating even before they saw the food, merely after hearing the sound of the bell. And he could even remove the food, not give them any food. And just by ringing a bell, make them salivate and make them excited to get food because they had learned and, or as he called it, became conditioned to this sound in the environment and uh, ex expectation of the body and uh, actually bringing about this response that was totally unconscious on the part of the dogs and uh, not to compare people to dogs, but we are all animals. And, um, and the same thing occurs with, with us with respect to sleep. And it's no different between infants or teenagers and adults. If there is something that you have in your environment around the time that you're falling asleep, you may become conditioned to that and 
begin to expect it or become reliant on it to produce feelings of sleepiness and tiredness in your body. And that can be helpful depending on the cue, but it can also be counterproductive because it is not always helpful to have to have a parent around the whole time that a child is trying to sleep. You don't want to be constantly rocking them between every single sleep stage when, by the way, it's, it's normal after a full cycle of sleep for a child to wake up. And yes, infants you know, may only be able to do one or two cycles of sleep at a time. But as you, as you get older, uh, you know, uh, to a year of age and older, uh, yes, you certainly should be able to sleep through the night and particularly for a long time, that doesn't mean that you don't wake up, but it, it's actually normal to wake up throughout the night after each sleep cycle. And usually if there's nothing bothering the child too much, they should be able to fall back asleep into a second cycle, a third cycle, a fourth cycle, uh, and, and sleep through the night. However, if they are conditioned to certain cues, things that they are relying on to help them fall asleep, then they will be more likely to wake up if those things are not present in between sleep cycles. And it's actually the absence of those cues that the child expects that makes them wake up more throughout the night and makes them stay up longer and have more difficulty falling back asleep. So ideally, you would not condition them and have them learn to, to be in your arms and to be feeding them or, or to have uh, you know, your presence or other things that you can't really maintain throughout the night in the first place. But if you do happen to have those things present and the child does learn that after a few months of age, it is possible to take them away, but it will take some work and there may be a little bit of struggle. And it is something that I think is necessary because every child eventually needs to be separated from their parents. In my practice, of course, I see all sorts of things. And absolutely, I see teenagers and young adults who still sleep in the same bed with their parents. And usually it's, it's a little bit of a problem. So at, at a certain point, you're, you're going to want to try and, and, and separate things out and get a child to learn to sleep on their own. Again, not, not every child needs to learn this because if you don't condition them in the first place, then they can sleep fine. Sometimes kids who weren't conditioned in the first place will learn things uh, through a sick period or a vacation or some other unusual time where, where they may have learned something new. But you can kind of extinguish this conditioning and association by, by training them again. And there are a few different methods that can be used. Really, in the research, they've all been shown to, to work equally well, though some take longer, uh, some might seem more abrupt and might seem like the, the child is more upset all at once. But, uh, but there are different things that you can do. And I, I don't know if you want, do you want me to, to, to go That's, through no. kind of three different methods? For sure. Four different so, methods? Okay. I, no, I think it's important to hear that, that at some point, in some way, you're going to want to help your child sleep. And it doesn't necessarily have to be one method and one method isn't the best method, but one method might be faster than another. And so if you can go through some of those methods, all I just, the, the emphasis being that the research suggests that they're all effective. No, one is not yes. necessarily better than the other. It's what matches with your own state as a parent and yes. character, right? So I think that's a really, really valuable. Um, and I would love for you to get more specific there. And I also want to just mention that that conditioning that happens early on, I mean, that's that's the kind of thing where I think essentially you're saying, look, if for the first few months of life, 
you are not ready to, you know, put your child down awake, but drowsy and not have certain conditions that require your presence or the presence of a feeding or the presence of whatever, fill in the blank. They probably won't get into habits they have to unlearn. But if you do do that, which is very intuitive for many parents, you're not doing something wrong. You can unlearn it. It's just, a, it might be a little bit more painful later. Absolutely. You know, I guess one misconception about conditioning is that it's permanent. And that's not the case. You can learn things and you can unlearn things and you can learn new things at any point in life, even adults and even older adults can learn and unlearn things, even things that they've done for many, many years. Certainly, the, the longer you've done something, the harder it becomes, but it's absolutely possible to do it. And in my clinical practice, even working with adults as well as all ages of children, we can, we can get you to learn and unlearn any type of behavior. Um, we have a lot of tools at our disposal, and I'll be able to go through some of them today, though certainly not all of them. Great. Um, and so today, can we talk briefly about three or four of the strategies for infants? Absolutely. Yes, I, I have. Uh, I have a few ones in mind, and I would also like to talk about about older children as well. Yes. After that, after we get this big question out of the way, I actually have two older children common scenarios that have been actually exacerbated. I think by the pandemic. So I would love for you to answer them. Yeah. So before I begin and and talk about the different methods of sleep training in late infants to toddler and even preschool age, it bears uh, to talk about that it it doesn't make too much a difference to your child which method you use. Some methods work more quickly, others take a longer time, but having your child cry, um, challenging your, your child and even doing something that, uh, you know, some parents would, would feel, you know, some parents would even call this cruel, though I, I certainly wouldn't, the things I'm about to describe. <laughs> uh, Lots of research shows that, that these methods do not harm children. And studies, uh, multiple studies have looked at and compared children who have uh, had sleep training to children who have not had sleep training uh, and all the different methods. And they all basically uh, reach the same levels of development. They all were, uh, on average, uh, very uh, well-adjusted and happy and, uh, and all had great attachment to their parents. And most importantly, th- there was no harm done to the children by using these types of methods, even if they did cry and throw tantrums and have a, a difficult time for a while. Uh, and that's very important to remember. Uh, and so I just wanted to get that out of the way there. I'm so glad you said that. And also, I think there's lots of people that misuse research. Um, yes. Their parents, like they use that research from Romanian orphanages and compare. The, uh, it's really disturbing that, that people would do this to parents to scare them, but comparing neglect with right. just the allowing your child to cry for these periods where you're trying to help them unlearn certain habits so they can learn to sleep. And I think that that's been so widely abused. So I'm really glad you said something. So it's important to remember that using methods such as sleep training is really a part of starting to teach your child about limits. Some people might even use the word discipline. 
But the idea is that you are giving your child space to learn to do things on their own because yes, parents can model behaviors for older children. Yes, parents can guide their children. But at a certain point and to certain extents, depending on your child's age and development, you need to allow them to do things on their own. And that means not doing it for them at a certain point. And this is really the beginning of that process. So you can, you can give your child a number of things. And of course, you want to give your child love and attention and food and shelter and uh, you know, um, uh, bodily hygiene. But for sleep, after a few months of life, you want to allow them to learn to do things on their own and guide them, but, but give them that space and pull yourself away in this very uh, you know, limited way during the nighttime. As long as you're giving them love and affection and all those other things, you will form a good attachment with your child and, uh, and they will be well-adjusted in, uh, you know, in, in the, the more general sense. So some of the strategies include... Fill in the blank. <laughs> yes. Okay. So I'll start with probably least popular type of strategy for sleep training, though it is the quickest. And we call this unmodified extinction. Extinction, of course, referring to stopping an association or stopping a behavior. And unmodified extinction basically means you're going to stop holding your child at bedtime, feeding them at bedtime, whatever it is you're doing that previously was giving them the cue to fall asleep that they were reliant on you for. You're going to stop that and you're not going to do it again, no matter what. And it is very sudden and abrupt. And this is the one that people have called cry it out in the past. And a lot of parents do have trouble doing this on their own. Um, often when, when they, they come into my office and I give them support, they can find the motivation to do this. And, and many parents actually do choose to do this method uh, because it is the quickest one. But it does result in some crying for, for, for children, and, and it can be quite a lot in some kids. Uh, so the idea is, okay, yesterday I, I did my usual routine of, uh, of, of rocking my child, of, of feeding them, having them fall asleep in my arms, and then putting them in the crib. And maybe they wake up throughout the night, and I do that repeatedly throughout the night. And that, and that was my routine, and I did that yesterday. And tonight I am going to uh, have the child hold them in my arms calm them, but not have them fall asleep in my arms, put them in the crib, drowsy yet awake. And after they're in the crib, they might wake up again, realize that they're not yet asleep. They might cry. They might tantrum. They might do any number of things to show me that they're upset, to show me that they're awake. But I am going to walk away. I may keep an eye on them, or I may even walk out of the room and, and, and try, to, try to not pay attention to them. And they may cry or scream or yell for a long time. Uh, it may even be hours. Eventually, they will fall asleep. Um, it's very seldom that they'll stay up the whole night, though rarely that, that will happen. And then the second night, you're going to do the same thing. You, you may comfort them, calm them when it's bedtime, put them down, drowsy yet awake, they might wake up more after you put them down. Uh, they might cry or scream or yell, and it may go on for a long time. And do this every night, and you don't go backwards towards the, the prior behavior. Uh, but as long as you are consistent, you will get through it. However, it is important to note that usually on the 
second or uh, usually third night, sometimes the fourth night, the crying and screaming will actually get worse. And many parents will give up at this point because they feel there is something wrong, that things are getting worse, that the, the crying and screaming is getting louder and longer, and they think that the method is not working. When in fact, this is expected, we call this the extinction burst. The, uh, the idea that the child is now doubling down and trying even harder to uh, get you to give in and, uh, and pick them up again or feed them or whatever it is. And if you give in and go backwards and, and, and pick them up and feed them or, or, or what have you, it will teach them that in order to get you to do that, they need to cry and try even harder. And, um, and then, the, then the next time, if you try to train them again in the future, uh, they will triple down or quadruple down. The, the most challenging kids really are the ones who have been, who there have been several attempts to train them uh, that, that, uh, that the parent gave in, you know, after a few nights. So it is very important that a parent needs to be really prepared for that extinction burst, prepared for things to get a little bit worse. And they may have a few sleepless nights. But in, uh, you know, in, in the majority of cases, especially if they haven't been trained before, if they've only been trained maybe once a while ago, as long as the parent remains consistent, usually after a few nights, things will get better. Particularly when you see that extinction burst, that's actually a good sign. It may be worse that night, but you know the following night, it'll actually be a little bit better and then better after that. And usually, you know, it only takes a few nights, uh, maybe a week at most of, uh, of, of some crying, and it may last an hour or two. In very complicated cases, it can be a bit longer, but usually by a week, uh, your child should be, for the most part, sleeping throughout the night. And it makes a huge difference in parents' lives. And this is sort of the fastest method. Um, and, and in many kids, you know, it, it, it's not such a big deal, but, uh, but it can be for some. Right. It could so be 20 minutes for some of them. But right. you have to know yourself as a parent. And if this sounds horrifying to you and you're not going to do it, you're better off not even trying than going in and sort of re doing exactly what you said, going in and then giving up. And now you've set a new thing up. Um, That's so, what, right. so if you, if you really can't handle it, what's another strategy? If that one just sounds like I'm never going to be able to, to follow through with it. And I don't want to make things worse. So I'll just, I'll just add to what you said in that. Yes. If you are going to do this or really any other of these plans, you want to feel very confident in yourself and very prepared before you do it. And it's okay to delay sleep training a little bit in order to build up that confidence and to make a plan. You may want to think about different uh, contingencies. You may want to think about, are the neighbors going to be upset uh, if my child is crying? And uh, oh, some yeah. of us don't care. Yeah, some of us don't care about that, but, but some of us do. And, and so you may want to go and speak with the neighbors you know, before you do it and, uh, and maybe bake them cookies or just let them know. And, and usually they're quite understanding. Um, and, and that will take that concern away from you for when you do it, you can feel more free to really push forward. Other things, you know, if, if you have other children and you're worried about the crying, waking them up, uh, you know, you can rearrange sleeping arrangements for, uh, for, for that week, or, uh, or you can do things with, with your schedule. And the point is that you want to address each of these different potential obstacles so that you have a backup plan and you will feel more confident and enabled to carry this plan through. And that's, that's key here, the planning and the preparation and not doing it until you're really ready. Great. So number two here, the one that I think most parents will use is something uh, called graduated extinction. Other people refer to this as uh, the Ferber method because Dr. Ferber was, uh, was the one who invented this, was a big proponent of it. And the idea here is that 
instead of stopping all picking up, all feeding, all uh, comforting measures to help the child fall asleep, stopping it suddenly, uh, you are kind of stopping it gradually, bit by bit, and bit by bit, allowing the child to take more ownership over their own sleep and allowing them an opportunity to learn without doing it all at once. So this is probably easiest for, for kids who are in a crib. There are kind of modified methods for children who are older sleeping in a bed. But I will talk about another method uh, that I think is, is, is better for children who are actively mobile and you know jumping out of their crib or bed or running all right. over the place. So the idea here is that you are going to go through your sleep routine and calm your child down and have them feel uh, drowsy and ready for bed. And before they fall asleep, you will put them down in their crib and you will leave them be, walk away, walk out of the room if you can. And then you will return at progressively increasing set intervals. So the idea is the first time you leave, you're going to come right back. Uh, you may you know, literally step your foot out of the room for one second and turn right around and come right back to the crib. And the idea here is that you're actually teaching your child as much as they can understand, depending on their age, that their parent will be back even if they leave. And they should expect that just because you leave doesn't mean you're gone. And that expectation will then, uh, in many cases, put off their crying and put off their tantrums for a while because they will bit by bit learn to be able to wait. And so, okay. First, you walk away, you come back within one second. And then when you come back, of course, we don't want you to take over completely. You can give a little bit of support for them, but not the, to the same extent that you would have prior to the sleep training. So you want to keep this interaction brief and ideally without any physical contact. So you go to the side of the crib. They can see you there if they're awake. They, they can look at you. They might reach out. They might cry. So probably not as much as, as if you're doing the unmodified extinction. And just knowing that you're there should be a little bit comforting to them, though not the full amount of comfort that they might want. It, it should help a little bit. Ideally, you shouldn't touch them. If you have to put you know, one hand on them briefly, ideally, you shouldn't say anything. If you feel you're really the need to, uh, you can say something very brief and rehearsed and repetitive and boring you know, it's night, night time. I love you. I'll see you in the morning. And then with that, spending, you know, less than a minute at the crib side, walk right back out again. And this time you can take a little bit longer, maybe five seconds, 10 seconds, uh, whatever, depending on the child and get them to try to wait a little bit longer. And then you come right back and again, give that brief interaction, ideally without any physical contact, ideally without uh, talking or interacting too much but just to let them know they're there. If they happen to be looking out for you, they'll see you're there, spend less than a minute, leave again, this time longer. If you can do a whole minute, great. Then you come back, leave again. If you can do two minutes or five minutes, make them wait, make them learn to not have you there and uh, without necessarily freaking out. Then you come back again. If you feel like they did well, do longer. And the idea is that each time you leave, it's a longer time, but they know or they'll learn that you are coming back. And so it may not be as much crying or tantruming all at once. 
Uh, they may have little bits here and there, or more commonly, you know, they'll feel a little bit uncomfortable, but not fully all at once or, or to the same degree as they might if, uh, if they don't expect you to come back at all. And the idea here is uh, th- that they will learn to be able to wait and learn to be able to calm themselves and soothe themselves because they're given the opportunity. And at a certain point, they'll be waiting long enough that they'll probably fall asleep in between your returns. And then the second that you do it, you may be able to do it a little bit faster and start with longer intervals, depending on the child. And eventually, whether it's after a week or two weeks or three weeks or four weeks, they actually will be able to fall asleep rather quickly uh, and, and you may not need to return again. So it takes longer, but it might be easier for yes. some to stomach this, this way. Yes. And keep in mind, your child might still cry and you might still have some of the same problems with the, with the other methods, but usually it's, it's a bit easier and it is the most popular method, I think. And now we're going to take a little break so that I can tell you about my sponsors. Feeling your best starts with what you put into your body. And Sakara gives you the ability to not just eat healthy, truly enjoy it, but also with very little work from your end. So they have chef-crafted, plant-rich meals that build a foundation for radiant health. And instead of imposing restrictions and limits, you just nourish your body and give it more of what it really needs. Sakara believes in giving you more of what's good for you. Sakara is a nutrition company that focuses on overall wellness, starting with what you eat. They have organic, ready-to-eat meals that are made with powerful plant-based ingredients and are designed to boost your energy, improve your digestion, and get your skin glowing. Along with delicious, plant-rich meals, Sakara also offers daily wellness essentials like supplements and herbal teas to support your nutrition. Experience the power of plants with their best-selling metabolism super powder made with organic raw cacao. It works to boost energy, eliminate bloating, minimize sugar cravings, and reduce fatigue. And right now, Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off their first order when you go to sakara.com slash RGH or enter the code RGH at checkout. That's Sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A dot com slash R-G-H to get 20% off your first order. Sakara.com slash R-G-H. It's so delicious and you feel so amazing. This episode is brought to you by Public Goods, the one-stop shop for sustainable, high-quality, everyday essentials made from clean ingredients at an affordable price. Everything from coffee to toilet paper and shampoo to pet food, Public Goods is your new everything store, thoughtfully designed for the conscious consumer. Rather than buying from a bunch of single product brands, Public Goods members can buy all their premium essentials in one place with one beautiful, streamlined aesthetic. Public Goods searches the globe to find clean, healthy, eco-friendly, and innovative products. I can't even tell you what my favorite product is because I went on a crazy binge getting everything that I could from public goods. It's just all wonderful. I love their soaps, their candles, their cleaning products, their toothpaste, their toothbrushes, the tree-free toilet paper. I mean, it is such a cool brand. I was so excited to get to know them. And they are ethically sourcing and obsessively developing each of their products 
to be free of unhealthy ingredients and harmful additives that are still common on drug and grocery store shelves every day. They're committed to making their products healthy and safe for humans, animals, and the environment. Knowing what's in your products and where they come from is important. And small changes in the way we shop can make a big impact on not only our personal health, but the world at large. They plant one tree for every order placed and incorporate sustainability into every part of the company. It's just awesome. I worked out a fantastic deal just for my listeners. So you're going to receive $15 off your first public goods order with no minimum purchase. That's right. They are so confident that you will absolutely love their products and come back again and again, that they're giving you $15 to just spend on your first purchase. You have nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com slash humans or use the code humans at checkout. That's P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com forward slash humans to receive $15 off your first order. With summer coming to an end, the leaves about to fall, we're all doing our thing to prepare for the new season. You can do yours by getting free life insurance quotes with Policy Genius. Policy Genius can't help you refresh your cool weather wardrobe for autumn, but they can help you shop for another kind of coverage, life insurance. If someone relies on your financial support, whether it's a child, an aging parent, or anyone in your life, to properly provide for families, most people need 10 times the life insurance coverage than they get through their employer. And it's all just so unpleasant to think about, and there's so much paperwork involved. But Policy Genius makes it easy to compare quotes from over a dozen top insurers all in one place. And why compare? Because you could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. You can save $1,300 or more per year on life insurance by using Policy Genius to compare policies. The licensed experts at Policy Genius work for you, not the insurance companies. So you can trust them to help you navigate every step of the shopping and buying process. Eligible applicants can get covered in as little as a week, thanks to an award-winning policy option that swaps the standard medical exam requirement for a simple phone call. This exclusive policy was recently rated number one by Forbes Advisor. Getting started is easy. Just head to policygenius.com and in minutes you can work out how much life insurance coverage you need and compare personalized quotes to find your best price. When you're ready to apply, the Policy Genius team will handle the paperwork and scheduling for free. Policy Genius doesn't add extra fees. Just head to policygenius.com to get started right now. Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. You got Hi, I'm Elizabeth Kotz. And I'm Stephanie Sambari, and we are the hosts of That's So Retrograde. Heard of us? For the past 200 and some episodes, we've been trying to figure out what the hell wellness is. We have inspiring and fun conversations with all types of amazing people, from healers to comedians to whatever's in between. We're five years in, but we're just getting started. So hop on board every Thursday to join the party and route to living your best life. And don't forget your cannabis. Or to check us out on Instagram at So Retrograde. That's right. Bye. See you there. Now, the third method really is the one that I think is probably one of the easiest for kids who are very mobile, kids who are either climbing out of their cribs or really should be or are in bed uh, often for, for toddlers or for preschool kids. Uh-huh. Um, and this method is a 
sort of a different type of graduated extinction. We call it camping out. And uh, the issue here is that for these kids who are more mobile, who are more likely to run all over the place, uh, using the Ferber method where you sort of leave them and walk away is, is sort of difficult because they may chase after you as soon as you leave them. Uh, and so uh, it, it kind of takes away that uh, the power there. I mean, yes, you can, you can, um, you know, for some people, yes, you can walk away, they run after you, and then you, you put them right back in the crib and walk away again. Uh, then, of course, you're, you're running back and forth carrying the child. And that can work, but, but it can be exhausting. And, and a lot of parents don't like that. So to sort of, to sort of obviate that, that whole process uh, with camping out, the idea here is that you again have a, a kind of a progressively increasing challenge where, where the child learns to be able to do more on their own each uh, night or every few nights. But instead of going completely away for short uh, periods of time, you are progressively a little bit further away from them each night or every few nights. Uh, and so the idea here is that uh, you think of the amount of support you're giving to their sleep uh, as being a, a progressive process. And there's different sort of stages. And you can be at one stage. And then after a few nights of this, once you feel they're doing well with that, then you challenge them by moving a little further away. And, and then uh, you're at a different stage. And once they're good at that, you move to the next. So the idea here is uh, first, you want to establish a baseline. You want to make sure that you're not, you know, at baseline fighting with your child or, or having issues. So if, if you are sort of going back and forth without like a real good plan for sleep training, uh, where, where there is a lot of struggling at that time, uh, maybe you do want to give in to your child for a bit just to show that you can have them sleep well, at least with, with your own support to, to help you feel a little bit more confident, to feel more calm. And hopefully maybe you're a little bit more well-rested for, for a little bit. So, and once so in that case, with that, sorry to interrupt. In that yeah. case, meaning you might have to camp out for a couple of days just so they get a good night's sleep before, you know, and there's no tension. Or do you mean I, even yeah, whatever uh, habit? Well, depending on who you talk to, that, that may or may not be processed, uh, part of the process of camping out. But, uh, but I do think it's good to start these trainings on a good foot, feeling, you know, relatively well rested, feeling you know where, where you are starting from. And without a lot of other complicating factors, because unfortunately, sleep training and um, bedtime associations aren't the only thing that affects sleep. Um, I, I don't know if I could really go into all the other stuff right now, but you know, th these things, um, these things really only address certain aspects of sleep, the most common ones. But there can be other complicating factors, a and you want to ideally make sure that uh, you know those other things are, are not an issue uh, when you start this process. Really, the, the main issue that these things deal with is, uh, as I mentioned, the, the conditioned response, the association. We call it the bedtime association uh, of, of the fact that they're relying on the parent, uh, something you're doing in order to be able to fall asleep. So, you know, you've established a baseline and maybe that baseline is you are literally sleeping in your child's crib with them, uh, you know, holding them the whole night. Or maybe the baseline is that for some kids, older kids, you know, maybe you're, you're holding them in, in your bed uh, if you're a co-sleeper. Once you've established your baseline, then you know the next step is uh, going to be uh, having them in their crib. And there may be some degree of physical touch, probably uh, you know, having a hand on them. Uh, some parents you know, are, are uh, uh, you know, massaging or caressing the child. And, uh, and you have that as, as the uh, first step. And, you know, uh, it may be less interaction than you've had before, but it's still physical touch. And you want to do that for a couple nights and see if they're okay with that. 
And ideally, this is less than you've given before, but it's still something. And some kids may, you know, really object and find this difficult. But uh, but a lot of kids, you know, will, will make this transition okay. And once you feel comfortable after a couple of nights of this, that that the child is is comfortable at this stage, then you move to the next stage where you are sitting or standing by their crib or by their bed without touching them, uh, just being there and allowing them to be able to fall asleep. And it may take some time and they may reach out to you and they may be a little bit upset, but hopefully not so bad. And ideally you don't move backwards into the prior stage, but you know, if you really feel like uh, you need to uh, put a hand on them, or if you feel like they're jumping out of the bed and you need to place them back in bed and have your hand on them for a second, just to keep them there and then slowly back off, you can do that. And of course, ideally, uh, you're not giving much interaction uh, aside from physical interaction. Hopefully, you're not giving too much verbal interaction. But if you feel the need to say something to help uh, calm them, you want to use brief, standardized phrases. Sound like a broken record almost. You know, you don't want you want to be boring. You don't want to give yeah, them a little a lot bit of interaction. Robot. Right. right. Um, you know, I love you. It's time to go to sleep. Good night. And uh, and then once you feel they're good at this stage, you move to the next stage uh, where. Uh, instead of sitting or standing right next to their better crib, you move slightly further away and you'll be in their room, but they, they may need to turn their head or they might need to kind of look over in order to really see you. Uh, and hopefully they will go back to kind of trying to go to sleep or not trying to interact too much with you. Hopefully they'll get bored of that after a while and they'll be able to fall asleep. And yes, again, if they jump out of bed, if they try to jump into your arms, you put them back in the bed you use minimal interaction. And if they do it over and over, you keep putting them back over and over. Uh, but usually it's easier than, uh, than you know, going straight to getting out of the room and having them chase after you. Once they are doing well and not jumping out of bed as much um, and able to tolerate you being kind of uh, further back in the room, but nearby, then you actually want to progress to the next stage where you stand at the door of the room you're really not there in their sphere of influence uh, unless they're really trying to see you. And again, you want to try not to interact. You want to try ideally not to make eye contact. Uh, you want to try not to say things if, if you can avoid it. And once they do that and, and they feel comfortable with that, knowing of course that you are nearby, that they do have your support if they really should need it, but they're learning to be able to uh, allow themselves to go to sleep on their own. Then you can actually go into the hallway uh, or outside of the room so that they really can't see you at all unless they really run out of the room, uh, which they might do. But if they do run out of the room, they'll notice that you are there and that you will help them. And of course, you want to keep this at a minimum. You don't want to be giving them too much support such that you are really reinforcing the behavior. You don't want to be giving them a lot of comfort and a lot of pleasure you know, running out of the room. And so you want to keep things pretty minimal. And uh, I guess I will put a, a name on this. Uh, we, we call this sort of strategy of, of minimal interaction. We call this neutral face enforcement. Um, the idea that you know you're bringing them back to bed without any fuss. You are neither giving them too much encouragement or pleasure or comfort, but also not showing a lot of uh, negative emotion or upset. If, if you can, you don't want to give a lot of fuss. Um, you don't want to stimulate them. Uh, you know, with a lot of overly trying to, uh, you know, use logic or, uh, or, or negatively enforcing them, uh, you just want to keep it at a minimum. And so uh, if you can keep a, a blank face, uh, if you can not talk, if you cannot comfort them, uh, that's the idea here. And, and this is important for all of these strategies. 
Finally, once uh, once they're able to stay in bed without seeing you because you're in the hallway and they're really not running out of the room most nights uh, and you feel they're doing well with that, then after uh, putting them down to bed, drowsy yet awake, you actually can leave the room and not be waiting around. And yes, you know, at some point, of course, they're going to pop out and try to get you. And, um, you know, and you'll deal with that when that happens. But uh, when that does happen, you want to bring them right back to bed as long as there's no extenuating circumstance. Uh, and, um, and you will reinforce that. And, and you've won and you've succeeded at that point. Those are all the, 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 the main standard methods of sleep training. And again, depending on their age and stage of development and their mobility, um, you can kind of pick and choose between these different strategies. That's so helpful. And the rest of the stuff is really coming to terms with how we, the adults, feel about all of these strategies. But the science tells us that the strategies themselves are all okay and for in terms of later outcomes. And so Absolutely. Really, that's so important for folks to hear because it gets so emotional. And sometimes it's just hard to imagine yourself as a sensitive, loving caregiver who's also teaching these skills that sometimes require discomfort, like all things that our kids are going to go through. Yes. They're uncomfortable over the years. May I ask you till about what age would you say, is this for kind of the zero to five set out of the, you know, crib set? Is there a point at which maybe, or is it zero to three, four, and then at a certain point, you're going into a category of when to really worry, or is there a time when you would want parents to say, you know what, scrap all that. What I want to say is, <laughs> forget anything I just said. Is there uh, something that parents can go to in their own minds to check in if something just feels like it's not right and they should seek out more support or call your office or you know talk to your physician? Uh, I think that if, if, you, if you don't feel confident in this process, if you have any type of concern that uh, it's totally reasonable to, to speak with your pediatrician about sleep training or about uh, sleep in general, because while well, yes, sleep training and a bedtime association is probably the most common thing you see, you know, particularly yes, after, you know, between a few months of life and age three or age four. And honestly, it can go a lot older. And of course, in my practice, I see much older kids who have these problems and these same strategies do work. Uh, there are other complicating factors and, uh, you know, there are probably underlying reasons why you haven't done this earlier, or if you have done it, uh, reasons why um, you, you backed out, or there may be issues of uh, parental confidence or uh, self-guilt, or there could be medical issues with the child. Uh, there could be uh, issues with uh, how your household is set up or the environment in the bedroom. There uh, may be issues with establishing a good sleep routine or the timing of sleep. But uh, yeah, I would say that if, uh, if you've tried sleep training before and had trouble, or if your child is older, or if you have any worries whatsoever, speak with your pediatrician. And usually they're going to reassure you and, uh, and say that everything's fine and, and give you the go ahead. But you do want to create a good plan and try to address any potential obstacles towards success. Uh, and that includes uh, not feeling confident and includes if you have any concerns that there may be some sort of medical sleep problem or other type of environmental issue. And uh, I will say uh, maybe I'll address maybe two, two of the most common uh, things that, uh, that can interfere here. As you get 
into toddler and preschool ages, there are issues with respect to the fact that it, it, it does take longer to fall asleep. Babies can really fall asleep on a dime sometimes. And older kids, uh, just like adults, need some time to be able to calm down and get drowsy. And so you want to make sure that you have a good, good routine and good sleep routine and sleep hygiene, uh, which are things that, yes, you know, we, we, we do uh, want to have some of the beginnings of that in, uh, in infancy, but it's needed more and more and, and becomes more important as children become older. So, yeah, after, you know, particularly after a year of age uh, and, and into toddlerhood, you want to make sure that you're having more calming, relaxing activities later in the evening that you are uh, not running around and having lots of stimulation and excitement right before bed. You may want to have the lights be a little bit dimmer, uh, you know, an, an hour or two before bed, possibly. And then you do want to have uh, a, a sleep routine of 10 to 20 minutes of things that you do every night you know, that are more or less the same. And that may be uh, your, your bathroom routine and washing up before bed, and then maybe reading a, a story together or singing a song. Um, or cuddling, or whatever it is that you more or less do the same each night. And it's a calming thing that uh, will help your child become conditioned to that, not necessarily to fall asleep, but to know that it's time for sleep and to uh, set expectations and allow them to become more calm. And then ultimately fall asleep, they will do on their own. But that will kind of help put them in the right mood and in the right headspace. So that's, that's number one, I would say. Yes, that you know there there can be some medical issues that can interfere with sleep, and uh, as a sleep specialist, uh, that's probably what I'm dealing with. Uh, you know, the same amount, if not more, than uh, kind of general behavioral sleep issues. But the um, probably the, the 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 biggest medical issue that I deal with uh, that I see um, aside from just general behavioral issues is obstructive sleep apnea. That is basically a condition where the where children are uh, having smaller breaths or even stop breathing uh, at frequent intervals during their sleep. And that will actually wake them up and, and make their sleep worse um, and can cause some issues. And usually uh, most children who have this issue, they're having a lot of snoring as they're sleeping. Um, and in many cases, it's quite obvious. So if, if your child is snoring a lot and if they're having some sleep issues, uh, you know, that's something you will want to talk with your pediatrician about, and you may want to see a specialist. Occasionally, uh, you know, the, the, the signs can be more subtle. Uh, you know, this, this is only about 5% of, of children. So it, most children don't have this issue. Uh, but, uh, but certainly, if you do have any concerns about your children's breathing, or something seems wrong about their sleep, uh, you know, this, this may be an issue. And of course, uh, other medical conditions can interfere as well. That's really helpful. Two other quick questions. And then I feel like we should do a whole other thing on um, older kids, but if you have a second, I wanted to know, and, it, and it's sort of, they're, they're kind of mirror each other because one is for preschoolers and one is for teenagers, um, but they sort of are similar, which is for preschoolers who find that they're now in daycare all of a sudden and they weren't before and they don't nap during the weekdays, should parents shift them to napping on the weekend so they get more sleep or just keep it consistent? And then the teenage version, which may have a different answer, is for teenagers who during the weekdays have to wake up really early, but still go to bed late. 
if on the weekends they want to catch up on their sleep and sleep until two, are they better off, I guess, setting an alarm and getting less sleep, but getting up at the same time or catching up on sleep over the weekend? Okay. So two different questions here. I know I was trying to have a parallel. That's (laughs) that's totally fine. There is one other thing I I do want to mention uh, about insomnia and, um, and, and preschool children, which uh, I'll, I'll, maybe we'll, we'll talk about that after this. So it's funny. I usually get the opposite complaints about uh, preschool kids or or kids in, in daycare where they actually are napping more when they're in daycare versus at home where Maybe not getting you know two naps, but but maybe getting one nap during daycare, and then when they're at home with their parents, they're just so excited and stimulated that they're not taking a nap on the weekends, and that's the thing that I see more frequently. And 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 sometimes I will work with parents to uh, try and help their kids get a nap on the weekends. But you know, even though sleep is important, usually kids are doing quite well, and and people are quite amazingly flexible that they, they often do. Well, uh, even if things are not perfect and, uh, and it's okay if they're not napping all the time. Yes. You know, does it help a little, it often can help to get that nap and you can use these same types of strategies to help get children to nap too, giving them the opportunity around the right time when you're seeing those cues. Um, usually when there's uh, there's a dip in the circadian rhythm in the middle of the day or, or the mid early afternoon. And um, generally around the same time that they would be taking that nap in daycare, um, you want to offer them the opportunity and you want to try to not stimulate them or interact with them too much. And, and you should be able to get them to, to nap during that time if they are uh, also able to nap during the week. So that is something that you can do if, if you want. And then if, if they are happily going down for a nap, but they just can't during the week, you should let them? Uh, yeah, I think, I think that it's fine to have some variation in nap schedule. Okay. Uh, the, the thing that really sets the circadian rhythm is, is the nighttime sleep and the daytime activities. Obviously, most preschool kids and, and toddlers really are going to benefit from having naps uh, because they, uh, they, they just can't uh, sustain exactly. their uh, attention and, and, and energy you know, for such a long period of, uh, you know, of time, you know, 12 hours a day without having a brief rest. But um, but it's not the end of the world if, if they sometimes don't get that. So they, they might be a little more uh, irritable, but that can be okay. Uh, yeah, if, if, if they will go down for a nap, if that's easy, and if they're not napping for way too long, uh, you know, to the extent that they actually sleep worse at night, uh, it's okay. I would say that if they're, if they're not napping during the week at daycare, there's something about the routine or the environment uh, that's, uh, that's putting them in that space. And um, depending on the situation, maybe you can talk to the daycare staff but uh, I find that it is kind of hard to get daycares or, or, or schools that kind of change the things that they're doing. Right, right. Okay, so now you mentioned circadian rhythm. So teenagers right now, will that throw off their circadian rhythm if they're, let's say they're going to bed at 10 or 11 at night during the weekdays or later, who knows? And then they do the t- typical... Maybe I'm just making the cliche of the teenager sleeping until noon on a Saturday and Sunday. Is it um, better for them to at least get that sleep or does it mess with their system to have this 7 a.m. wake up during the weekdays and then sleep in as long as they want on the weekends? 
You know, it, again, it really does depend on the person to a certain extent. There are all sorts of things that we talk about in sleep medicine that can make your sleep better and give you more energy. And if you really are trying to maximize um, energy and performance, yes, uh, you know, the, the recommendations I'm going to give can help. But uh, for teenagers who are doing really well and not having a lot of issues with their mood or behavior or academic performance or relationships, and they have good energy and they're staying awake during the day. I think that it can be okay to, to sleep in a little bit on the weekends. But of course, uh, as I see in my clinical practice and, and probably a lot of people listening here, um, you know, probably they do see that their, that their teenagers are maybe falling asleep during school or, or having trouble waking up on Monday morning. Yeah. And uh, if that's the case, yes, then, uh, then, then you are going to want to uh, try and follow these recommendations because it will help your child stay awake in school, feel better. It will help improve their mood and their academic performance. And yes, so the, the recommendation really is that in many cases, it actually is better to get a little bit less sleep, at least in the short run, in order to help keep your circadian rhythm more regular. And the idea here is that in as much as, as it's possible, depending on, on, uh, on your kids' you know, uh, homework and, 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 and activity schedule, you want them to be able to get a regular schedule to get to sleep early uh, during the week you know, or relatively early, maybe instead of going to sleep at 1am or midnight, maybe they can get to sleep by 11. I, I don't know where kids are these days. Uh, maybe, early. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's in non-COVID times, you know, if, if, uh, if you're, right. if you're, if you're schooling from home and, and school doesn't start until whatever, nine or 10am, it's a different story perhaps, but, um, right. but yeah, you know, especially in unfortunately a world where there are early school start times, Yes, you want to be getting to sleep at a very early time and preferably getting those eight to 10 hours of sleep during the week as well as on the weekend. So ideally, as much as possible, you want your child to be getting a consistent, longer amount of sleep during the week and then, and then keeping a, a more early uh, wake time as well as a more early bedtime on the weekends because kids who sleep in late tend to have more trouble falling asleep particularly Saturday and Sunday nights. And right. what happens is whatever gains they think they may be getting by sleeping in later on the weekends, they're actually losing that sleep then the next night or the following night or the night after that. And they are going to have a harder time waking up on Monday and Tuesday in particular. And the thing is that, you know, it's, it's not just the amount of sleep that, that, uh, that people get it is also the alignment with their internal clock, with their circadian rhythm. When you have a very regular sleep schedule, it maps onto your circadian rhythm and you really get the biggest bang for your buck. The quality of your sleep is going to be better and it's going to be worth more. If you have, <laughs> I'm like, I'm being greedy, but if you have time at any point, I would love to just focus on tween teens and sleep because I feel like as the school year starts, we need to get good sleep hygiene that has just gone amiss. But you could decide that on email and let me know. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm happy to come back. This has been a pleasure 